led us to a position where we have, by your grace, laid down our lives, and we ask that you would lead us tonight. We ask that the words of your son, Jesus Christ, would be the motto and mantra of our life. And God, I ask for your mercy as we open up your word, that you would teach us uh, that this wouldn't just be an exercise in talking and listening and thinking, but that you would be on the move in our midst. Amen. Well, friends, uh, as I said, we're going through this book. If you would like a copy of it, I will give you one. <laughs> There's two left. So first two in, uh, and you'll actually read it. If, you, if you're going to put it on your shelf, don't take it. But if you're actually going to read it, I'd love to give it away. Uh, it's been a really helpful book. Uh, and tonight, we're going to be discussing one of the most popular of the secular creeds, which is love is love. Um, we're going to be looking at what, what does the Bible have to say about that idea that Love is love. That's become sort of the, the anthem of the gay rights movement and the queer movement. Uh, and we want to investigate what that is. As we've been going through this book, Secular Creed, we've looked at lots of different statements. And, you know, the picture of the yard sign that you can actually buy on Amazon is a representative of some of the things that might be what our culture and what our people believe, people around us, maybe some people in this room. Um, and what we're trying to do as a church is figure out, well, how do we engage with these ideas? Because these are truth claims, these are moral claims. And so we need to think really hard and really well so that we don't fall into either trap that Rebecca McLaughlin talks about in her book. One trap is, as Christians, we see a sign like that and we pull out the hammer and we just think, well, because some of those things aren't, aren't good or true, we'll just knock it out and get rid of it. Or the other trap we fall into is that we pull out the hammer and we think, yeah, well, some of those things are true, so they all must be true, and I'm going to make that a part of my life. And so you hammer that sign into your front lawn. But instead, Rebecca McLaughlin encourages us to get up a marker instead of a mallet and to look to edit these statements, to find what the Bible says we can and must affirm and embrace, and to find out what we cannot and must not embrace and affirm according to the Bible. If you're new, thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, we're dealing with hard topics, controversial topics. Uh, there's going to be a chance for Q&A at the end. There's actually going to be a chance for a bit of group discussion as well. And I want to say at the outset that if you're someone that experiences same-sex attraction or that's something that's part of your story, um, I don't want you to feel like this is a place of you know, hatred or anything like that. Um, what we're going to be talking about tonight may be confronting or different, um, but I, I'd ask that we have a conversation about it, and I hope that you can find that this is a safe and welcoming community. So tonight, we are going to begin with a few scenarios uh, where you're going to have to talk to each other and uh, see what you think, because uh, I don't want to do all the talking, and because it's Sunday night, different to Sunday morning, we're going to do things a little bit different. So here's scenario number one. Tomorrow morning at work, your colleague... A female comes up to you with a beaming grin on her face, holding out her ring finger. On it is a big, juicy diamond, and she joyfully cries out, she finally proposed. And I said yes, and then looks at you expectantly. What do you respond? What do you say? Turn around to the people around you and have that awkward conversation. If you don't feel comfortable having that conversation, you don't have to. Um, but if you want to, you're welcome to. Now, we've got the conversation going a little bit. It's hard. Oh, it might be easy for you. I don't know. All right. Here's the next scenario. 
This is a little bit more geared towards those who are already in our church, but if you're new and visiting, you can jump in in any way. It's late on a Wednesday night after a recent growth group. So that's our groups where it's just the guys or just the girls together. And one of your friends in your group says, can I get a coffee to chat with you later? You say, sure thing. You meet up a couple of days later at the cafe. They're being quite anxious and fidgety. And you say, so, uh, what's up? Nervously, while stirring sugar into their coffee, they quietly confess, I don't know who to talk to about this, but I think I have same-sex attraction, and I don't know what to do. What do you say? How do you respond? Have a chat. All righty. Sorry to cut the conversation. We, we will have more time to chat at the end. So today we're dealing with that expression, uh, love is love. Uh, the idea behind it is that we cannot help who we're attracted to. And as long as we're expressing our love in ways that are consensual and safe, it shouldn't matter who we fall in love with or how that looks. Love is love. You can't help it. You shouldn't try and suppress it. And you certainly shouldn't be forbidden from living it out. That's kind of the, some of the thoughts that lie behind that idea, love is love. So how should Christians react to this statement? Well, what we've been trying to do in this time is try and think, okay, how do we find what we can affirm in what someone believes and says? And then what do we need to maybe push back on and, and disagree with? So let's first think about what, what, what can we affirm about the idea of love is love and loving same-sex and gay relationships? Well, first, I think we can affirm the thrill of sexual attraction, romance, and intimacy. Uh, these are good things designed by God. Uh, he made our bodies. He made us sexual beings. And so we can affirm the reality of this and the excitement of it. Secondly, uh, we can affirm the desire people have for monogamous relationships. Again, that's God's intention. God would desire, rather than multiple partners and multiple sexual activities, one person in a committed relationship. We can affirm the power of our need and desire for belonging, acceptance, and community. Uh, and so a part of the heart cry of this world is that longing. And we can affirm that, of course, no one wants to feel discriminated against, excluded, or shut out. And we can also affirm the powerful reality of same-sex attraction. Attractions that aren't wanted but just feel a part of who they are. We can affirm that that's a reality. But as followers of Jesus, we're going to see tonight that we must ultimately deny the expression that love is love and that is it. And we're going to deny that same-sex relationships of the romantic and sexual kind are good and right. Already at the outset, uh, to even breathe that sentence in our culture is to be immediately labelled as harmful, damaging and oppressive. People would say that this is now an unsafe room. Uh, people say it's unsafe to put any boundaries on same-sex attraction and love and that to do so uh, can lead to all types of mental health issues, uh, teen suicide and things like that. But the reality is, is that as Christians, we're called to follow Jesus. 
uh, and Jesus isn't safe. He doesn't call us to safety. The passage that we read to meditate on before says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus isn't safe. He doesn't call us to safety. But as C.S. Lewis said in the Chronicles of Narnia about Aslan, the lion, who somewhat represents Jesus, he isn't safe, but he's good. So what do we say about same-sex attraction in general and same-sex marriage specifically when it comes to the Bible? And just going to go through a few points and um, do a little bit of teaching, and then we'll have time for questions at the end. Uh, firstly, I think we could say this, uh, love is not love. <laughs> love you know, love is love is not correct. Love is not love. Instead, God is love. Uh, the Bible teaches in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. When we're trying to figure out what the definition of love is, we don't look horizontally. We don't look even in our own lives. We look to the creator of love, love himself, uh, God. The heights of love here on earth are but mere shadows of the love of God in heaven. So that's the first thing we want to say, that love is not love, God is love. And that's going to actually change the way we look at the whole topic, because now we're, we want God to define what love actually is. Second thing I think we could say is, that, is this. The Bible actually does deny same-sex sexuality as a good the Bible denies same-sex sexuality, but affirms same-sex love. And hear me out on that. We'll get to that in a moment, because I'm going to define love in the way the Bible defines it. So the Bible denies same-sex sexuality as good and right for humans, but it affirms same-sex love. Let's have a look at what that would look like. So Rachel was a same-sex attracted girl. Um, at 15 years old, she sort of figured that out and uh, went, went for it, um, enjoyed that. Uh, but when she got to college, she had a really hard breakup and was soul searching because her life partner, the ones that she loved, left her. And that actually somehow led her to investigate Christianity. Although at the time she thought Christianity was pathetic, um, she found it pretty easy actually to seduce Christian girls um, and have lesbian relationships with them, she did find Jesus compelling and couldn't escape a desire to find out more about him. She figured from her understanding of Christianity that the Bible was generally against gay relationships until she met a Christian lesbian couple. They told her it was just a big misunderstanding. If you read the Bible correctly, it doesn't reject same-sex relationships. But Rachel was smart. She was at Yale um, she read the Bible and was bitterly disappointed to find out that, that there was no way around it. It stung to have the opportunity open up only to be slammed in her face. Yet despite this, she persisted and eventually she turned to Christ, which meant turning from pursuing same-sex sexuality. So what were the arguments for saying, you know, what does the Bible have to say? And what were some of the arguments that maybe these, these lesbians made saying, oh, no, you can be a Christian and same sex? Well, here, here's a few that you could look at. Uh, firstly, the pick and choose argument. 
people say, well, the Old Testament, okay, forbids same-sex attraction and homosexuality, but it also forbids shellfish, eating shellfish, and it forbids wearing cloths, you know, clothes made of two different fibres. So if you're picking and choosing your laws um, about eating prawns, you know, on Christmas Day, or why, why are you choosing that homosexuality is, is wrong and incorrect. Um, but the reality is, to answer that, that the Old Testament law isn't binding on us, not because we pick and choose which ones we like or don't like, but because it's fulfilled in Christ and by Christ. Now we follow the law of Christ. And the law of Christ, instead of relaxing the strict laws of the Old Testament, he actually intensifies them. So he changes it. He fulfills the separation elements and the religious cultic elements that were in the Old Testament law. But the moral law continues and intensifies. He said, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery. So previously, it was forbidden... (laughs) It was, say, it was forbidden to go after, but it was okay to look. It never was. But he makes it explicit that even if your heart goes there, then it's adultery in and of itself. And so we're not disregarding the Old Testament law. We're tracing the whole Bible, and we find that it's fulfilled in Christ, and then the moral law continues. Rebecca McLaughlin said to that, If I'd been picking and choosing while exploring what the Bible said, I'd gladly have given up shrimp to marry a woman. Uh, the author of this book is same-sex attractive, but eventually was able to get married and, and cohabit in the, with both of those desires and f- fan into flame her heterosexual attraction um, and abstain from her homosexual attraction. So that's the pick-and-choose argument. People use that one all the time, but it doesn't hold up. The second argument is one called follow the brush strokes. Now, the idea is that, you know, like, a, like a, an artist's painting... What the Bible has doesn't ever make same-sex sexuality okay, but if you follow sort of like where the the paintbrush was going and if the the, the Bible kept on being written, eventually we would have found out that God is actually for same-sex relationships. That the arc of the Bible is toward inclusivity and love, and even though the Bible never explicitly says it, it lays the groundwork for it. But if you read the Bible, uh, you'll find that, it, like what Rachel found out, it doesn't stand up. Uh, there are many clear and explicit references in the New Testament to limiting any form of sexual activity outside of a heterosexual marriage. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin says, The New Testament no to same-sex sexuality is drawn in charcoal on the biblical big picture. But all other forms of sexual immorality are also sharply excluded. So to take the the painting illustration, the the brushstroke never gets there. The the clear lines of God's picture for sexuality are on the canvas. And let's have a look at some of these passages that give us a picture of what the Bible has to say about same-sex attraction. So let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
And since they did not fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Uh, So same-sex intimacy and relations are put in the list of all these other sins that no one is saying, well, it's actually okay to murder people um, or be disobedient or etc., etc., and they're put together. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 to 10, there's a, there's a good list here, and we'll, we'll look at this for a moment, because it, it has a list of sins, and it's actually a transposing of the Old Testament Ten Commandments into the New Testament. So let's have a look. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of God. Oh, you don't have that verse there. So you see in this sentence here, and you can keep it up on the screen because it'd be good to study it, and you can leave the verses, just let them hang there a bit. Notice how slavery and homosexuality are put together. Also in the same list is murdering, lying, um, and anything else contrary to sound doctrine. And if you remember the Ten Commandments, the the Fifth Commandment is honour your parents. And look at up there, those who strike their fathers and mothers. The Sixth Commandment is do not murder. And then the next command there is murderers. The Seventh Commandment in the Old Testament is, you know, you shall not commit adultery. And then he says the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. So they fit under the do not commit adultery, um, transposing the old law. The eighth command of the Old Testament was you shall not steal. And then look at the next command there, enslavers, which is man-stealing, going and stealing people and making them your slaves. Uh, And the ninth command is do not lie. Uh, And he says liars, perjurers. Uh, And so Paul is taking the Old Testament moral law, saying for the Christian and the church, The Ten Commandments, they still apply in a moral sense and homosexuality is forbidden under the Seventh Commandment. Do not commit adultery. And surely no one today would argue that enslaving people um, would be a righteous and good thing to do. But if you want to say that homosexuality is right and good according to the Bible, then you're opening the door to make a similar claim. Maybe you're thinking, though, uh, perhaps Paul was just a self-righteous bigot who hated everyone. (laughs) There's lots of lists of sins here. But if you read on into chapter, uh, verse 15 of the same chapter, he says this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So for Paul, although he's listing all these sins, he's not listing them as a moralistic, you know, soapbox preacher, obviously yelling at everyone. He's saying, that's me. I'm whatever you can imagine a sinner to be, 
I'm the worst of the worst of the worst. So this isn't coming from self-righteousness. This is actually Paul coming from love led by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that, that, that's the, the brushstrokes argument. And there's just two examples of where the New Testament clearly and explicitly forbids same-sex sexuality. Uh, and so it's very hard to make any argument which says that somehow that's going to end up uh, where God's approving it. But then maybe you could, uh, people say, this is the third argument, the Bible only forbids bad forms of same-sex sexuality. So they say, well, Paul wasn't talking about monogamous, loving, healthy same-sex relationships. He was talking about pedestry and pedophilia and uh, the practice in the Roman world where Roman lords could have sex with their slaves because they were their property. Uh, so that's what Paul's forbidding. Uh, but that actually is wrong historically. Um, it wasn't commonplace to have same-sex marriage in the Roman world, but actually Nero, who was, who was Caesar while Paul was writing, um, got married to men on two different occasions. Um, and there were lots of examples of same-sex erotica happening that weren't considered you know, terrible by the culture. So Paul isn't only disobeying and saying only bad forms of same sexuality. It's, it's all forms. And this will become clearer when we talk about marriage in a moment. Okay, so this is the, the principle. Uh, the Bible deny, denies same-sex sexuality. It, it, it's hard to get around that one. But then there's a follow-up point, which is that the Bible actually affirms same-sex love. And what do I mean by that? Well, what we're talking about here is not love as we would define it, erotic, romance, romantic love, but instead the love as the Bible defines it. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So by this, we know what love is, okay? What is love? You know, the great old song. <laughs> well, this is what love is, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us. And what's love for us? To lay down our lives for the brothers. Rebecca McLaughlin says, the Bible calls us repeatedly to non-erotic same-sex love. What she means and what Jesus is talking about is to lay down our lives for each other, men to men, women to women, and across the sexes, as a body, as a church, unified in the tightest possible relationship, that we are, as Christian brothers and sisters, called to these deep, real, affirming, loving relationships that don't involve sexuality. The Bible calls us to that. It's a non-negotiable part of Christianity. And the church is meant to be closer than our family, even closer than our spouses if they're not believers. Paul, as a Christian man, a single Christian man, was not afraid to express his deep affection for his brothers in the faith, his co-workers and the churches he loved. If you read Paul's letters, you'll see how much affection he actually had. Uh, one good example is Onesimus, a runaway slave that Paul befriended whilst in prison. And Paul says of Onesimus to his owner, Philemon, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. That's Philemon 1 verse 12. 
And you see this deep affection Paul has. So he's not against great love between men, but it's the right type of love. Five times in the New Testament, we're told to greet each other with a holy kiss. I'm not sure exactly what that looked like. Um, Don't try it on me tonight, but something. And Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John the Apostle is referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. And contrary to what some people think, this was not homoerotic love. This is brotherly affection. It's same-sex love, but not as the world sees it. Rebecca McLaughlin says, helpfully, like sibling love and friend love, the love between same-sex believers is precious, deep and intimate. But it's not sexual and it's not exclusive. So the Bible denies same-sex sexuality, but it affirms same-sex love. And we're not to mix the two together. There's a helpful illustration in that book. And she says she was watching Planet Earth. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a scene in Planet Earth with David Annabra where this elephant herd is on a trek to try and find water. And as they're going through the desert, a, a desert storm blows up. And sadly, the baby elephant gets separated from its mother. The storm settles down and the baby finds tracks and it starts following its mother's tracks. And then the camera pans out and zooms out and the narrator sadly tells the viewers that indeed the baby is following the tracks of its mother but in the wrong direction, away from the water. And the baby never finds the herd again. Commenting on that, Rebecca McLaughlin says... It's not that the Bible doesn't celebrate same-sex love. It does. But rather than pointing us toward exclusive sexual relationships, these scriptural tracks lead to non-erotic, non-exclusive bonds between believers. Correctly followed, these tracks lead to a waterhole of love filled in Christ. But turned to sexual sin, they lead to death. So... When people are searching for love, even same-sex sexuality, they're following the tracks in the wrong direction. There are tracks, and they're on to the right idea, but they're following it in the wrong direction. Now, we know this from parental love. There's you know, almost no higher bond between a parent and a child, and the love is so deep and beautiful and intimate, and no one thinks twice of it. But if you add sexual love to parental love, you spoil the whole relationship. It becomes deeply damaging. Uh, It's incredibly um, horrific. And the Bible would say the same thing, that we're not to add sexual love to same-sex friendship, that God has designed us to have true relationships and friendships with the people of our own gender, but we're not to add sexual love to it. And the Bible also teaches that sexual love is not the pinnacle of love in the Bible. It's good, but not ultimate. Parental love is also not the pinnacle. It's good, but not ultimate. The love of family is good, but not ultimate. The ultimate love is what Jesus says in John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. We see that in Jesus. And he's giving a model for us that actually the highest form of love in the world 
is self-sacrificial friendship love. Love where you're laying down your life for the good of other people. The love which Christ has shown us and modeled to us and now he calls us to live out. So, the Bible denies same-sex sexuality but affirms same-sex love. You might be wondering, if I'm a Christian with same-sex attractions, what am I meant to do? Or if you encounter a Christian with same-sex attractions, what are they meant to do? Well, I would have two points. Firstly, find and express true love in Christ and the church. One of the best places to experience true love, non-sexual love, non-erotic love, is in Christ himself and in his people, the church. The church is to be, for all of us, our closest loves. Our true family, biblically speaking, ought to be the church. That is why Paul prized singleness so highly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because it freed men and women up to serve Jesus Christ and the church with no attachments. In Paul's economy, singleness in some ways is better than marriage because it means that you're freed up to love more sacrificially with less distraction. If we're to deny our same-sex attractions and abstain from them because the Bible calls us to, then we ought to find more love in Jesus himself and his church, not less. Rebecca McLaughlin says, This is the context in which same-sex Christians should be able to be living today. A loving family of faith, in which lives and food and struggles with sin are shared between siblings in Christ. I used to fear that sharing my experience of same-sex attraction with my Christian friends would cause them to take a half-step back from me. Now I realise that by not sharing my struggles, I was taking a half-step back from them. For same-sex attracted Christians, the struggle can be very real. The person who leaves a gay relationship to fall into the arms of Christ should feel more love, not less. The arms of those who are Jesus' body here on earth should be his tangible embrace. And if you are someone or know someone who has same-sex attraction, I encourage you to take that half-step forward and share it. And if you're the person receiving that person, don't take a half-step back knowing that you can fully and completely embrace them because you're called to same-sex love, not same-sex sexuality with that person. And you can give them same-sex love as the Bible defines it. What about marriage? Um, Well, the reality is, and the inescapable reality is, that the Bible's definition of marriage means that if you do not pursue a heterosexual marriage, you'll miss out. Uh, marriage won't be for you. The story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is marriage is between one man and one woman and one lifetime in the ideal. Jesus talks that there is the possibility of divorce for various reasons, but the picture of marriage across the Bible is that it's not the ultimate form of love. Marriage is actually designed as a signpost to the ultimate form of love. That's why in heaven there'll be no marriage. In heaven, we won't be married to our spouses because in heaven there will be only one marriage that remains. All the way through the Bible, you notice that God refers himself as a husband and his people as the bride. In the Old Testament, 
Isaiah um, prophesies and God says, I am your maker, your husband, and the people, the bride. In the New Testament, the same pattern is there. Jesus Christ is the husband and the church is the bride. And the reason why marriage is for only for a man and a woman is because it's meant to be a signpost to this reality. God is the male groom and the church, his people, collectively are the, are the bride. And so marriage is a signpost to that ultimate relationship of God. It's not the destination. And so in heaven, there'll only be the great marriage of Christ in the church and there'll be no more um, marriage between husbands and wives. Marriage will cease, but the true marriage will live on. And so even though you may miss out on that marriage here on earth, the one that God defines as good and right, you will not miss out on the greatest marriage that's ever been and ever will be. There's the great marriage uh, and the great husband uh, that will never let you down, that will never you know, let you go. The great one that sacrificed his life. So, we want to say tonight, and we'll have time for Q&A and discussion, God is love, not love is love. Marriage is a sign post that points to Jesus, and the picture of it has to remain the same for it to make sense. We can't mix it up and make it however we like. The Bible denies same-sex sexuality, but it affirms same-sex love. And we are to find and express true love in Christ and the church. I'll pray. God, I pray and ask that this teaching would be a blessing, uh, that you would help us to think these things through and figure out what does this look like in the practical. Amen. Turn and discuss with the people around you what you thought, any questions you've got. We'll put the text line up. If you want to ask a question, um, it'll be my phone, so it's not completely anonymous, but I'll just assume it's, it's a question that just exists in the world that someone has. It doesn't have to be your own personal question. So you can text through any questions and we'll go through them live with the time we have, but spend five minutes. What did you think? What did you like? What did you dislike? What did you disagree with? Feel free to text in your questions. This is the scary bit, trying to think on the spot. So someone asked, is the love they are talking about really lust instead of love? In the love is love, is that the... Well, maybe at the outset, but I think that if people from that community were speaking now, they would be talking the same as what we'd be talking about, but heterosexual normal relationships, um, that it's the whole breadth of it. Even self-sacrificial love. Um, but that's why we have to get the Bible's de definition of what true love is, because ultimately true love won't do something that will damage another person. And if the Bible defines, and if God defines same-sex sexuality as damaging then to actually follow through with it and be a part of it is not actual true love. Um, and that's why we have to lovingly keep standing against it um, because it would be unloving for us to permit it and encourage it and celebrate it uh, because it's not actual true love. Although many of the, the relationships would mirror or would be way better 
than some of our marriages. Uh, we're not arguing that heterosexual marriage is better than uh, same-sex marriage because a lot of heterosexual marriages are terrible um, and a lot of them break down. Um, it's not about that ultimately. Uh, so there's some thoughts on that one. Okay, so you have a non-Christian who's getting a same-sex marriage and invites you to the wedding. Would you go considering they're proclaiming not to be Christian and so we aren't holding them to what the Bible says? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I, I know a couple of people that have decided to not go to the wedding. Um, and at first I was like, why, why would you not go? Like, just, just go. You don't have to agree with it, but you're sort of supporting them. But as I listened to their reasons why they didn't go um, and thought about it, it, it goes down similar to what I was saying before, that sometimes there is a moment where we, we can't celebrate what someone is doing, even though it may not be you know, life-threatening or, or harmful. Because it's eternally harmful, um, there, there's probably a time where we need to, in love, speak to them and say, actually, what, what you're doing and celebrating and enjoying um, because of my beliefs and what I think it, it means for you, I can't celebrate that with you. Uh, and unless you're willing to go to the wedding in opposition uh, or to shout it down, uh, then you probably shouldn't go. Because when you go to a wedding, uh, it's actually a legal ceremony. Uh, a wedding is um, you have witnesses and, and the, it has to be public and those things. And so when you're there, you're actually part of the crowd that's witnessing to the vows and saying, you ought to hold to this and I'm with you in it. It's very difficult to be at a wedding and not celebrate what is happening in that wedding. Uh, so what, do you go with a sour face and when everyone cheers, do you go, well, no, you know. So there's going to be very difficult for you to go to a wedding and, and not celebrate something that God has expressly forbidden um, and said we shouldn't do. Um, and so th that would be how I'd be thinking it through. It'd be hard and, and people lose relationships over this type of thing. And it's going to become increasingly common. However, as we've been going through this book, we want to think, okay, how can I do this in a way that's wise and winsome? Um, how can I show them that I, I, I truly love them? Uh, and then show, how can I express appreciation to you, my love for you, in a way that doesn't violate my conscience? Uh, now, Christians have different perspectives on what they would do, and the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not go to a gay marriage. Um, and so we have to have freedom for one another uh, as to what people do based on their conscience. But for me, I, I, I wouldn't go, uh, and it would lose me points, and, and I'd look like a... But I wouldn't because I, I can't see how I could be there and and celebrate something that, that God doesn't celebrate uh, and I don't actually think is best for them. Um, I've actually know of a friend who, even when they moved in with their boyfriend, they were like, the friend said, oh, we've moved, we've finally moved in together. And they actually said, oh, I really, like, I'm not going to celebrate with you because I don't think that's God's best for you. Uh, and, you know, I love you, but... I think it would be better for you to wait uh, and to get married first because that's what the Bible says. And they, their, their friendship deteriorated for six months, but eventually the, the friendship came back and they were able to rekindle things. And so when we hold the line, uh, we're going to look like baddies and the 
fund police and against diversity, inclusion and moralistic and self-righteous. Um, but, you know, we just, in our heart of hearts, we have to not be those things, but know that we're actually for true love. Some people say that same-sex is a demonic spirit. Um, question mark. I've actually never heard that. Um, but I don't think the Bible would treat it like that. I think Romans 1 teaches that we have desires and our desires can be um, misformed by our sin. And so we can take good desires, like desires for sexual intimacy and attraction, and appropriate them or place them in the wrong places. And as a sign of God's judgment on us, he allows us to do those things and he hardens our heart and we get turned in the wrong direction. And so maybe Satan's involved somewhere there, uh, but I, I think there's nowhere in the Bible which would say this is led to this because of a demon. Instead, the Bible would say it's because of your own decisions that you've rejected God and you've not allowed his his way to shape you that you've gone in this direction. How would you respond to a Christian who said, it's all about grace. So judging homosexuality as condemning is against grace. We're not saved by our works or by what we do. Well, then homosexuality is permissible? Uh, Question mark. Well, it depends on what they mean by grace. Uh, and you, I think it'd be a good chance to ask them, what, what do you mean by grace? And again, like we're trying to model in this, asking questions and getting people talking is really helpful because they want you to answer and say something potentially that they can trip you up over or hold against you. But I think as you define, if you start to define grace, you're going to have to start talking about, okay, Christ, and then what did Christ do? teach and believe and and what did Christ do on the cross? Well, he died in our place for our sins. Well, what does he define as a sin that needs grace to cover it? Well, some of these things are sin and and therefore, is it really great, coming back to it, is it really gracious and loving to allow someone to live in their sin? No, just like it wouldn't be graceful and loving for a doctor to say to someone with cancer, well, we'll just, it's a headache and I think Panadol will fix it. Um, or maybe have you tried, you know, some vitamin C? Uh, that, that might look like um, comfort at the time, but it's cheap grace. Uh, costly grace says, you know, I'm willing to, to die for you, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're going to look at what the definition of grace is in the Bible and help that person to see that it's not cheap grace. Uh, and it's also costly for Christ and for us. Um, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross. Um, in trying to discuss with someone that believes you can be born gay, would you agree with the idea that same-sex attraction is just that, an attraction on a spectrum of sexuality, i.e. you can fall on the side of the spectrum that can be tempted to be attracted to the same sex rather than the other side of the spectrum being completely heterosexual? Hope that makes sense. Lol. (laughs) Basically, how do you discuss with someone that aren't born gay? Okay, so... In trying to discuss with someone that believes you can be born gay, would you agree with the idea about same-sex attraction is just that? Um, so 
I think statistically they've found that of the population, there is a higher number of people that have more same-sex attraction than we would probably think of. There's a very small percentage of people that have exclusive same-sex attraction that doesn't change. Um, most people that have same-sex attractions are somewhere on some kind of spectrum of, you know, people we know and love, people in this room might have experienced same-sex attraction, but they also experience heterosexual attraction. Uh, and they have gone with that um, and not with the other one. There are, it does seem to be that there are some people that are genuinely born with that attraction. Uh, because of the curse, because of the fall, we live in a sinful world. Our attractions don't work as they ought to work. And so there are some people that, I say, let's say, born that way. Statistically, it's not as big as people would say. Um, statistically, there's actually a lot more people born with a bit more of a, a widespread uh, but whichever way it works, if you're born or you're shaped that way by your experience, we still come back to what the Bible teaches, that we're to be living by what the Bible says. Uh, and therefore, however you're born, whatever struggles you have, we're to conform to God's best for us. And that means for everyone denying some sexual attractions. Uh, people who are married deny sexual attractions or should deny sexual attractions all the time. Uh, people who are unmarried should deny all sexual activity. Uh, and so the Bible would say to someone who's born, say, same-sex attracted exclusively, that you're in that camp of denying all sexual activity um, unless it's of the stuff that God says is good and right for you. If that didn't answer the question, sorry, we can chat about it afterwards. Should Christians seek to do gay conversion therapy with someone of same-sex attraction? Well, if you seek to do it in Victoria, you could be put in prison. So that's a, a, a thing. I, I'm actually not 100% down on what the gay conversion therapy is, so I probably I couldn't speak to it very much. Um, I, I would, I'd probably be more looking with someone, rather than trying to change their sexual desire, trying to help them... How can they thrive with whatever, however they're feeling at this point in a way that aligns with what the Bible has to say? And I journey with them and who knows what will happen to their sexual desires over time because they do change. Uh, the experience is, is that people that have felt one way have shifted to another way and maybe shifted back. And so maybe some people do convert, some people do change. Context changes, you know, if it's, if it's easy to be in a same-sex relationship, you're more likely to do it. If it's very hard, you're less likely to do it. So I would be just looking with someone who's same-sex attracted and a Christian, be like, oh, let's follow Christ with everything we've got and let's see where the Lord leads. And if, if your desires change, great. If they don't change, that's, that's going to be harder, but still great because you can follow Christ. You can experience same-sex love, true relationship, deep intimacy in the church. You don't have to have proper sexual attraction to be a Christian. You don't have to have proper sexual attraction to have a fulfilled life. Uh, Jesus never had any sexual activity, and he was the happiest man that was ever born. Uh, and so we can live happily and joyfully without it, and I'd be pointing people down that line and see where the Lord leads. And there's lots and lots of stories of people that have actually experienced over time their desires changing, being married and happily living in a heterosexual marriage, and there's lots of stories of people that just haven't. 
A good example is author and speaker Sam Albury, who's a celibate man who is same-sex attracted but has decided to be celibate because that's not the right way to live. I'm sure he would love to pick and choose what arguments of the Bible, but he's following Christ and he's called to lay down his life and follow whatever Jesus says is best. And we all have to do that. And there's just different temptations that people face. And we, we all have different temptations. And for people that are the same sex, it's going to be very difficult in this world. But um, there is another world where all of our desires will be ordered in the right way. And we'll have heaven where everything will work properly There'll be none of this conflicting desire um, and things will match up. So I'll be pointing him toward that good news story at the end. Okay, well, it's five past seven. Uh, we can have more chats if you'd like to discuss it. There's a start on some of those things. If you think there was something I missed or you want to talk about something, I'd welcome any questions. Thank you very much for coming out and thus endeth the Sunday night's experiments for now. And um, we'll see, I'd like your opinion, whether or not you'd like to do more things like this on a Sunday night or not, less things like it. I mean, you just vote with your feet, I guess. But otherwise, let's eat a bit more food, drink, pack up and head out when you need to. Have a great week. Go and live for the Lord. Thanks, friends.